0: Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, it is... Almost the end of summer, can you believe it? It seems like it's been very short. I came back from vacation uh, last night and realized less than two weeks before school starts. Do we have any teachers in here this morning that start back tomorrow or have already started? Many of you already have. Let's give it up for the teachers. At the end of our service today, we're gonna have a special prayer for you guys. Uh, But thank you guys for all that you do for all of our kids. Um, My kids, they're kind of, you know... Both ways about summer. And they, they like going back to school and seeing their friends. But one of the things they love about summer is the extended bedtimes. Probably some of you parents do the same thing. You give them a little bit longer bedtimes during the summer. And then my kids have a way of talking us into giving them even extra time at night. Um, but one of the things we like to do is to show different movies to them uh, during, during the summer. Movies from our past, like we watched Um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, y'all remember Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, what a classic, and we watched The NeverEnding Story a few months ago, my kids were not a big fan of NeverEnding Story, and then you watch it and you're like, this seemed a lot cooler back when I watched it, you know, 20 years ago. The, The technology has kind of advanced a little bit, but one of the movies that I really wanted my kids to get into and to watch and to enjoy, and you know, they never did for some reason, is Star Wars, I don't get it. I don't understand why they don't enjoy the original Star Wars trilogy. Um, Because I loved it. Growing up, I had all the different little Star Wars toys and all of these things. And I'm like, even my son, I'm like, isn't this awesome? He's like, yeah, it's okay. I'm like, no, it's great. It's amazing. Yeah, it's all right. But anyway, um, I love Star Wars. And I think one of the reasons that many people love Star Wars was the the character of Darth Vader, right? The the redemption story that you see in Darth Vader, the bad guy who realizes at some point and and is so clear in those moments when he realizes that he has been wrong all of this time and he chooses to redeem himself at the end. Um, and I think many there's many movies that are like that. They have this redemption arc, if you will, where where a main character who is who is evil, who is the bad guy, something happens and he becomes the good guy. He realizes his wrongs and he changes his ways. Or or situations where uh, the story or the the outlook seems hopeless and and it's full of despair, and then something happens to to change the course of that character's life or the story in the movie and. It ends up being a hope filled situation or a story of success. I think we as humans in general we kind of we, we just gravitate toward those types of movies and those types of stories because it's written into our hearts because it is the story of the gospel. It is the story of all of human history. When you read scripture from beginning to end, you realize that every one of us has a redemption story. Humans as a whole, our race has a redemption story that we were lost, we were dead in our sin without Jesus. We were enemies of God, we had turned away from all that He had given us, but God sent Jesus into this world. And because God sent Jesus into this world, it gave us a way to go from death to life, to be lost, but now be found, to have redemption in our lives, to go from hopeless to filled with hope, to go from eternal despair to eternal life. And so redemption is just a key thing that happens throughout scripture. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter nine. We've been looking at the book of Acts Throughout this summer and up to this point, Luke, the author of Acts has really focused in on the disciples and not just the disciples, but really, if you want to really understand it, how the Holy Spirit, how God through the Holy Spirit has been working through the disciples to to establish his church. And not just establish it, but to grow it, to exponentially grow his church from a small spot in Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, you see the church has reached into every corner of the earth and is growing and getting stronger and stronger. But it's not just because things have gone easy for the church. It's not because everything went well. It's in the midst of persecution. It's in the midst of very trying times. It's in the midst of governments and and other religious leaders who are really upset with these Christians because they're claiming someone else to be God Jesus, they're claiming Jesus to be the Lord and Savior, and they don't want that. So they are persecuting the church. And while the church is being persecuted, God and his Holy Spirit is growing the church even greater and even greater. And in this story today that we're going to look at is is a new character that has just been introduced in the book of Acts, a man named Saul. So what we know about Saul is Saul was, a, 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 as a child, was born in a place called Tarsus, which is in Rome. It's a part of the Roman Empire. So he was a Roman citizen. But when he was very young, we know that he moved to Jerusalem with his family and began to study Jewish law and had a Jewish education under some well-known Jewish Pharisees. And so, even though he was a Roman citizen, he was also just the prototypical Jew of all Jews. The, if you were looked at a kid and you wanted the, the child that everyone wanted to have, he knew the Jewish law, he knew the Jewish regulations, he knew the Jewish religion, and he knew all of it. And so, he grew in a lot of influence within the Jewish um, religion at the time in Jerusalem. And he had actually gotten so much influence, and he was known well enough that we find out that the Jewish leaders actually put him in charge of some, some pretty bad things that we're going to read about today. So what happens now in the book of Acts chapter 9 is we are introduced to one of the greatest stories of redemption of all time. The greatest story, I would say, is the story of God saving humanity. But right in the midst of that is this story of this man named Saul, who is almost a Darth Vader-like character in the Bible, in that he was going around and persecuting Christians and then becomes a Christian himself. So let's start off, actually, in Acts chapter nine, 8, where we begin to learn about this man named Saul. Who was a Roman citizen, grew up learning all of the the Jewish laws, was a Pharisee of Pharisees, was high up in the religious order in Jerusalem. And this is what he is doing in this moment when the church is beginning to grow and Christians are beginning to flourish in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. So, 8, verse 1. Stephen has just been stoned, one of the first Christian martyrs because of witnessing to Jesus. And it says this and Saul approved of his execution. So Paul Saul was, was well-known enough, had enough authority that they looked to him, and he was the one who was approving of what was going on in this, in this execution. And then it goes on, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So these Christians, fearing for their life, scattered throughout the known land. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse three, but Saul, again, this man named Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So if you can think of any person who was the antagonist in the book of Acts, who was the bad guy, that if you began to watch a movie centered on the book of Acts, when Saul was introduced, he would be that Darth Vader character. He would be the one that everyone says, oh, no. Saul's coming. He's coming to kill. He's coming to murder. He's he's coming to persecute. He's coming to drag Christians who believe in Jesus out of their homes and throw them into jail. And so we have this feeling that Saul is going to be a problem for the Christian church. But God had other plans. Acts 9 verse 1. This is what happens. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which was Christianity, any followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul has decided that he wasn't just going to stop in Jerusalem. He was going to go beyond Damascus, about 150, 135 miles away from Jerusalem, maybe a two-week. Uh, journey if you're walking. So he was that determined to get rid of people who loved Jesus, that he was going to take a two weeks journey up to Damascus to pull the Christians out of Damascus, bring them back to Jerusalem so that he could throw them into jail. Now, what I noticed with this, and this is what I think about with Saul and really with all of the Jewish leaders of that time, this is important note, is that Saul was persecuting the very God that he thought he was serving. Think about that for a moment. The Jewish leaders at the time and Saul, even if you would have asked him, you know, Saul, what what are you doing, man? Why are you doing this? He would say, I'm standing up for God. I'm doing what God wants me to do. It's amazing to realize what has happened to these Jewish people think about the the Israelites were God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, we read how how God chose Abraham and said, you're going to be a great nation and you're going to be my very people and I'm going to love you. You love me back and I'm going to just bless you like crazy and it's going to be wonderful. And then the Old Testament gives us the story how Year in and year out, generation after generation, these Israelites turn their back on God, decide to do their own thing, selfishly start to make decisions for them instead of for what God wants. And over time, through generations and generations, the religion and the faith and the relationship that they have with God degrades, degrades, degrades until it gets to this point in the book of Acts in the time of Jesus also, where they had no clue what God wanted of them, that they had become so selfish and so self-centered and so prideful and had created their own religion that they began to do things that they said were in the name of God when they were really completely against God. And, you know, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it's easy to look at them and say, how dare they? Can you believe how horrible these people are? But I think it's a a warning for us, even though. I mean, it's a warning for us as Christians that if we think about the people who were closest to God, who had the best relationship with God through their selfishness, And through their pride and through their making decisions about for themselves instead of for God, how they fell away from God to the point that they became again enemies of God, that's a warning sign for us that we need to always keep our pride in check. You know, we need to always keep our selfishness in check because if we don't watch out, if we don't come to God humbly day in and day out, if we don't open God's word and read God's word and say, God, whatever your word says, that's what I will do. But if we instead make decisions for ourselves and kind of throw God's word to the side and kind of puff ourselves up and saying, we have all the right answers, we're going to do what we want to do. And I think I know what, who God is and I don't need God's word anymore. I'm going to be, you know, the strong Christian and look down on other people and judge other people kind of like the Israelites did. If we don't watch out, we can become like these Israelites, we can get to a point where we start to do things for ourselves and we think we're doing them for God. But I think that if Paul, if the Jewish people, if the Israelites as a whole, I know this was because scripture says it, if they would have humbled themselves under God's teaching and under God's word and said, even if I want to do this, but God, you say, do that. I'm going to do that. God, I'm going to follow you no matter what it costs me. I'm going to follow you no matter how uncomfortable it makes me. I'm going to follow you no matter what I have to give up. I think if the Israelites would have done that, they would have been in a very different place here in the book of Acts. But what we see is these Israelites persecuting the very God they thought they were serving because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because of their self-serving religion that they had created. So let's continue on. So Saul is heading to Damascus. He's going there to find more Christians to persecute them. And you may know this story, but let's continue to read what happens. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. He's probably about three days out, we read in a few minutes. So he's almost, almost there. On his way in, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to, and he said, who are you, Lord? Notice again, Saul has lost all touch with who God really is. Who are you, Lord? Saul thinks he has been serving God his entire life. And and the Israelites and the Jewish people and their religion think they had been serving God their whole life. But when God speaks to Saul, Saul has no clue who he is. That can be scary if you think about it. If God were to speak to you today, would you recognize his voice? If you opened up your scripture tomorrow and God said something to you directly that said, follow this, would you be willing to follow it? Or do we let so many other things in our life and so much busyness and work and all of the different things that this world can offer cloud our ability to hear God so much that we walk around more like Saul than we do like Christians. That if God were to speak to us in a moment, we'd have a hard time hearing it. "'Who are you, Lord?' Saul says. "'And Jesus said, "'I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. "'But rise and enter the city "'and you will be told what you are to do.'" It amazes me that that we can so easily forget about God, that we can so easily ignore God, that we can so easily begin to lose focus of God when we read in scripture, like the images of God are like blinding lights, Full of glory and full of honor, and then you read in Isaiah that when there, someone sees God and, and the robes of his the, tra- the train of his robes fills the temple, and all they can do is bow down because the the, the glory of God is so great and so big that I have a hard time. Myself imagining how amazing God is, how glorious and how full of just light and holiness and purity God is. Like when, when God is presented in Scripture, it's not just like you know, some other guy who's there to help you out. Sometimes we treat that God, God, that way. It's not like a granddad who's there to, you know, give you the things that you want. Sometimes we treat God that way. This is A light filled king of glory who is who is shining down on Saul and saying, Saul, guess what? I don't care what you want to do and I don't care what you were going to do. I am the Lord. I am the king. I am the creator of all things. And what I say you do, that's what you're going to do. And that challenges me as a a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that when I read God's word, do I find it optional or do I find it, I've got to do it? Because Saul heard from Jesus and Saul knew I've got to do what Jesus says I've got to do. It's not an option. Acts 9, 7 through 19. So let's read the rest of this, this story. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Paul has been blinded by this light. The, the glory of Jesus that shone on Paul has blinded him. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. and The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now imagine with me as if you were Ananias. So Ananias was a Christian, a follower of Jesus. No doubt he has heard from Jerusalem and from the other Christians who were, who were fleeing from Jerusalem to get away from this man named Saul and from this persecution. He has heard everything going on in Jerusalem. And God says to Ananias, a man named Saul is in your town. I want you to go to him, lay your hands on him to give him sight. And Ananias is like, wait a second. Is this, is this Saul, Saul? You know, is this the Saul that I've been hearing about Saul? You've got, you got to be mistaken, God. That can't be right. This, do you know what Saul has been doing? Do you know who this Saul is? That's what he says. Look at this next verse here. Ananias, verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. It would be like if you can think of the person in your life that has wronged you more than anyone else in your life. Think about that person or the person in your life that you think about that person, you say, yeah, that person is probably the furthest from God of anyone that I can think of. It would be like God coming to you and saying to you, I want you to go to that person's house. I want you to knock on that person's door and I want you to tell them about my love. And I want you to pray with them. What would your response be? You know, putting it in those terms, you're like, wow, can you imagine what Ananias was feeling in those moments? God coming to him and saying, go visit the very person that is trying to kill you and stamp out your faith. And so of course he's, he's a little bit hesitant. But the Lord said to him, verse 15 Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. So, this would be like if God were to say to you, not once you go to this person that, that, that you have, have this animosity towards, this person who has wronged you, this person, once you pray for them, guess what's going to happen? They're going to come to me, they're going to know me, they're going to surrender in faith to me, they're going to repent of their sin, and they're going to become the greatest missionary ever in the world. I kind of like that story a little better, right? That makes me think, oh, maybe I'll do this. And so God says, this is what's going to happen with Saul. So Ananias, verse 17, departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. Notice what Ananias calls him, brother Saul. Already Ananias has heard a word from God, said this man who was evil, This man who has persecuted Christians, this man who has wronged you in so many ways, now is a follower of Jesus, and so Ananias calls him Brother Saul. Could you imagine if the person who wronged you the most comes to know Jesus? Would you be able to still call them brother or sister? Or would we be able to forgive them in the way that Ananias forgives Paul? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So I want to notice three things from this, this longer passage that I just read. And the first one is this, is that Saul's blindness and conversion are great pictures of what happens when we become a believer, right? So Saul had a physical blindness, and this physical blindness was, was a picture, it was a metaphor of a spiritual blindness that he also had in his life. That even though he could normally see, spiritually, he could not see. He was not living in the truth of God. He was not living in in the way that God had created him to live. And so he had a spiritual blindness in his heart even before he became physically blind. And so when Jesus showed up in his life, Jesus revealed to Saul this blindness and it created a physical blindness in his life. And so Saul believes in Jesus, and then as Ananias lays his hands on him and prays for him. The scales fall from his eyes. He becomes blind no more. And that is a signal, a metaphor of what Jesus does in our lives when we come to know him and when we surrender to faith in him. That spiritual blindness that actually is in all of us is is washed away, is taken away from us so that we can know the truth of God and we can know what is really going on in our world and live out the way God wants us to live. And that's what's going on when, when when the... When the scales from uh, Saul's eyes are taking away, it signifies that spiritual blindness being left from him as well. And then he's baptized at the end. So we have this, this blindness that becomes belief. And then this belief leads to Saul being baptized It's the same with every one of us. This is the redemption story of Saul. And it's the redemption story of me and you. And it's the redemption story that God offers to every single person on this planet. God says to every one of us, there's bad news. Spiritually, you're blind. Spiritually, you're lost. Spiritually, you're dead. But all it takes is belief. All it takes is faith. All it takes is to surrendering to me in faith and that blindness will become sight. That lostness, you will be found. That spiritual death, you will come alive. And then after that, we do baptism as we celebrated a few weeks ago to celebrate that spiritual awakening in our lives. What that means for us is pretty simple, I think. There's people in our lives day in and day out who suffer from spiritual blindness there's people in your, your workplace, in your job, um, or in your school if you're a student, or um, even maybe in your family, or in the grocery store that you go visit. Day in and day out, as we as believers, as followers of Jesus, are, are living our lives, we encounter people who physically they may be able to see, but spiritually they're completely blind. And you know what that causes? That causes people to react In different ways than Christ would have us react. We can't expect people who are spiritually blind to act in ways as if they can spiritually see. We can't expect people who are lost to act as if they're found. And we're not going to see people who are dead in their sin to live their lives as if they are alive in Christ we have to recognize and realize that we are the ones that are called to go out and show these people a different way. When we run into a coworker or somebody at, at a, a place that we go or maybe on the, on the football, football field or soccer field or in our schools, and they react in a, a negative, harsh, maybe in a way that offends you a little bit, we need to recognize it's spiritual blindness that's probably coming through. It's nothing personal, and the way we react, we have the choice of feeding into that, or we have the choice of showing them the love of Jesus to help and try to pull them out of spiritual blindness. We have to realize that this spiritual war is going on in everyone's life every day and every single person that we meet, every person we talk to, and every person that we react with. It's easy just to, to take it on the face of things and say, well, that person's mean, well, that person's rude, well, that person's impatient, well, that person's this. That's easy to, you know, just throw out the words of, I don't, don't want to deal with all these people that are this way. But if we really take the time to recognize what, what Acts 9 teaches us, that, that there's spiritual blindness that is deeper than these, these little characteristics that we might call people and that God is calling us to reach deeper into people's life, to care a little bit more, to actually go a little bit deeper with them so that we don't just write them off with these little characteristics. We can help people move out of spiritual blindness into life like Ananias did with Saul. But here's the thing, and this is my next point that I would that I recognize here, is that Ananias And even others were very skeptical of what God was doing. They were very skeptical of what God was doing. Let's look again at what Ananias says in Acts 9 after he hears about um, Saul's in town and God wants him to go again. He says, Ananias answers, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. So he is thinking about Saul's past and saying, God, I know Saul's past. I know what he has done. Based on his past, I don't think you've got this right. I don't think I'm the man for this job. And do you know that even even later, like even much time has passed, Saul continues to grow in his knowledge of Jesus and follow Jesus and share the love of Jesus. In Damascus, he then travels down to Jerusalem to to try to kind of meet up with the disciples. And again, the disciples are very, very skeptical. They won't let him into the congregation, into their group for a while until they hear testimony from other people. So it wasn't just Ananias. It was everyone in general was very skeptical of what God was doing. And I think that gives us another picture into the fact that we as Christians, we have a hard time understanding how deep God's grace really goes. We have a hard time really understanding the depth that God's grace will go to pull somebody out of sin. We have a hard time really understanding these redemption stories or things that we need to be celebrating instead of being kind of skeptical of, you know? Um, it's, it's pretty amazing that, that, that God didn't require anything of Saul before he changed his life. He didn't require you, Saul, you have to do A, B, C. You have to meet these four or five expectations and then you can start preaching about Jesus. Then we'll call you a Christian. Then we'll call you a follower of Christ. No, it was God said, Saul, you were this way. Now you're not gonna be that way anymore. I'm changing your life in this moment. And from this moment on, you're a follower of Jesus. God's grace met him right where he was and changed his life radically in that moment. And so we need to be ready to welcome with open arms people who's, who God's grace has changed radically despite what their past is, despite what things may have happened, despite even the, way they, the ways they may have wronged us or people we know in the past. God calls us to recognize when, when he changes people's life, we as a church are the ones who need to be bringing them in and caring for them and loving for them so that they can take the next step in their faith. And here's the last thing, and this is probably the most important thing of all. As I read this scripture and as I look through this as a whole, it's this truth that Saul's past did not disqualify him from his present calling. Saul's past did not disqualify him from what God wanted to do with him. And it's the same with every single one of us. And so I don't know where you are spiritually, where you are in your faith journey, um, but there's probably, knowing the size of this room and the people in this room, there's probably people in here who have bought into the lie that because you have done this in your life, you can't be used by God. Or I have, I'm struggling right now with this in my life, and because of this, I can't serve here or there in this capacity Or there's no way I'll ever do anything great for Jesus because, and you go back to something in your past. Or I can't talk to my friends about Jesus because they've seen me at my worst. Or they've seen me when I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Do you know how many people knew who Saul was? Everyone knew he was. Everyone knew his past. Everyone knew what has happened, what he had been doing. God radically changed his life, and boom, his message changed immediately. He went out and shared the good news of Jesus. There's no greater thing you can share than a mess in your life that becomes a message of the gospel of Jesus. And so because of your past, God has given you a great message, not Not your past disqualifies you from having a message. So Saul's past did not disqualify him. That also means that if we see someone who God has radically changed their life, it doesn't matter what their past is. It doesn't matter what they've done. We can meet them where they are and we can bring them alongside of us from that point on. So whether you're the person who is dwelling over your own past, Or you're the person who sees someone else's past and so you disqualify them. There's a message for both of us. God's grace is bigger than any sin. God's grace is deeper than any depths that we have been in. The love of Jesus and the cross can cover every sin that has ever been committed in the entire world. It can take everyone's past and eradicate it so that every single person has a better future, a future of hope and a future of God's love in their life. So what I wanna do is I wanna pray for us and the band's gonna come back out. And I wanna pray um, just what we've been talking about this morning, that in your life, in your past, it doesn't have to determine your future, but God can determine your future. Every one of our futures and every one of the people you know in their futures. Let's pray.